0: Welcome, welcome, welcome to the first edition of Who Says No in, I believe, two weeks. I've been on vacation, but now I'm back, and because this league refuses to honor my personal time, there was naturally a ton of news while I was away. Most recently, or I guess I shouldn't even say most recently, because we got the Joel Embiid extension this morning, but most recently, at the time I started planning this podcast, Marcus Smart agreed to a four-year, $77 million extension with the Celtics. So joining me today, talk about that deal the really enormous ripple effects of it and Boston's future as a whole from Celtics blog and a million other places is Adam Taylor. Adam, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing well. Thanks, son. I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. It's uh, It's been a crazy few days covering the Celtics.
0: Yeah, I was going to say it was really, really quiet for a long time. And there was a lot of, you know, antsiness coming out of Boston. A lot of people saying, when are they going to do something? And then boom, Schroeder, boom, smart, just all this flurry right in like not even just a few days, but a few days after the normal active period ends. So like you kinda owned the news cycle for a few days
1: there. Stevens has been really smart doing that because he owned it before the trade. Um sorry, before free agency opened, and then as you say, he waited for it to die down and then struck again to own it again for a few days.
0: Yeah, I don't think Brad Stevens is thinking about this from a PR perspective, but I mean, A, he's done, I think, a mostly very good job. We'll talk about the smart extension in a second, but I think he's mostly done a good job, but he's also like, when Brad Stevens makes a move, he makes it at a time when everybody notices it, which is kind of fun and not really his personality. But you know what? I guess he's sort of been the opposite of Danny Ainge in that respect, where like Danny is sort of known for the moves he didn't make, whereas Brad so far has been really, really active.
1: It's, it's interesting to see as well. Like We'll touch on this during the show. But the one thing I keep reiterating um, on my podcast, on articles, basically wherever anyone will listen to me, is that the guys Stevens is adding all fit within a mantra of his complaints throughout the season. So he's really gone straight into the deep end and addressed some of those needs for the roster in the rotation. And I think that the speed he's done it to me. I'm kind of reading between the lines and looking at how much he, how much disdain he had for the tools he had to work with during that last season
0: we're going to get to Robert Williams in a little bit. <laughs> like, I'm wondering what sort of extension they're going to offer him. Is it going to be like four years and 28 total dollars? Like I was really surprised they didn't somehow end up with Daniel Dice back, but you're right. You can definitely see his, his issues with the roster, but I think that that's a nice way to segue into Marcus smart because we had sort of heard these rumors for a while that Brad is really frustrated with Marcus. He plays too out of control. You know, he's not the sort of player that Brad might want to keep, you know, they might want to trade him. Then he gets a four-year extension, and suddenly you're thinking, oh, Brad actually loved him all along. He's the core of the team. He's now going to be there through, at least on this contract, the 2025-26 contract. We'll get into how this affects Boston over the long haul in a second, but first I just want to ask you, in terms of value for Marcus Smart as a player, do you think this is fair? Do you think this is high? Do you think this is low?
1: Yeah, I mean, in my head, um, for like pretty much the entire offseason, or since the playoffs kind of ended for Boston in that first round, I've had a hard stop at 20 million a year. That's been the kind of the line I drew in the sand for Marcus Smart. I think that value versus impact, you can talk yourself into a deal around 18 to 20 million, where that impact is um, worthy of the value of the contract. So I'm okay with it. I don't feel like it's an overpay. Perhaps it's slightly more monetary value than it is basketball impact, but I do think that's going to be negligible, especially where like with Marcus Smart being so impactful as a Celtic and meaning so much to that organization I feel like he got that extra bit of money just for that what he means to the franchise and the fan base.
0: Yeah I agree with that I think 20 million a year was roughly where I had him at there is sort of a sentimental value that you can attach to him but I would also think that if he had made it to free agency just by virtue of there being multiple bidders you assume somebody probably would have offered him a little bit more like If somebody had offered him four years, 90 million, I don't think that would have been so crazy, right? Like he's the sort of player that you don't traditionally think of him as somebody who gets paid that much, but there just aren't that many guys like him who can defend at least three positions, if not four at an elite level. And has quietly grown into, if a sort of inconsistent shooter, at least like overall a pretty good one. So in terms of raw value, I like this. I think it would be less, I think they're paying him less rather than they would have if he hit the open market. But the elephant in the room here is that all offseason, all we're hearing is the Celtics are saving space for Bradley Beal. The Celtics think they can get Bradley Beal. He's obviously close friends with Jason Tatum. They're both from the St. Louis area. So I have a couple of numbers for you here. Assuming that Tatum, Brown, and Smart are all on the roster next season, the Celtics can no longer get to max cap space. I have them at around $33.8 million under the projected um, $119 million cap. And that's if they get rid of everybody. If you throw in the dead money for Al Horford, you get up to around $18 million in space, which is still significant. But that also means you know renouncing Robert Williams. That means get rid of all, all the young guys in the building, et cetera, et cetera. So like, all of a sudden, creating cap space becomes significantly harder. We had talked about this on Twitter. I know you're on the other side of this. My position had been, I would rather not extend Smart or Robert Williams and go into next offseason with the ability to create max space basically just by trading Al Horford. There would have been some other stuff they would have had to have done. Now that becomes a little bit harder. Now if you want to create max space, you have to trade Marcus Smart on a four-year deal, which I think is doable. I don't think it's necessarily easy, but you also have to trade Al Horford, which is harder. There are other ways they can get Bradley Beal, and we'll dive into those in a little bit. But I just want to ask you, how do you feel about the Bradley Beale chase at this stage now that Smart has been extended?
1: I mean, for me, I was always of the mindset that Bradley Beale is the dream, but get, obtaining the dream isn't always the reality. Like um, I wrote a piece that got absolutely torn to shreds by the readers for Celtics blog um, last week. Just saying, saying just that, you know, like a plan is great. Having a plan is excellent, but seeing it through to fruition doesn't always happen. So while Bradley Beal is the, like, the golden goose in this example, it doesn't necessarily mean you're getting there regardless of things. I think that Washington have done an excellent job of pivoting into like this competitive rebuild where um, you don't see many teams do that when their star starts to become disgruntled. They kind of double down on trying to keep the star happy without actually making the roster moves, whereas Washington have done a fantastic job of making some upgrades. I think that makes it less likely that Bill becomes available. Maybe he wants to give them an extra year and sign that big deal before making any decisions, that big deal with Washington, that is. So I was never sold on Bill being the primary outcome of next offseason, which is why when they the rumors of extending Marcus Smart came out, that made a lot of sense to me because of the risk factor in losing Marcus Smart and not guaranteeing yourself Bradley Beal in return.
0: I agree that in general, you could never feel like you're guaranteed a superstar. In fact, like, So many teams want Bradley Beal between Golden State, maybe Denver. I've sort of earmarked Atlanta as a team that could probably get into that if they wanted to. So many teams want him that no team has particularly good odds. But I would say if Beal really was to start looking for other destinations, the friendship with Tatum, the long-term upside of Tatum and Brown, the positional fit, just everything there. I think if they wouldn't have been favorites, they would have been in a pretty good position. But there is no guarantee. What I do want to ask, though, let's say Bradley Beal is not coming, like hypothetically. And the smart move, I'm not going to say indicates that he's not, but it makes it a little bit more complicated. If there is no Bradley Beal at the end of this rainbow, what does the long term plan become?
1: Your guess is as good as mine, man. Um <laughs> Part of me feels like a lot of the Celtics next step, if if Bradley's like operating in a vacuum where Bradley Bill is not going to be in a Celtics uniform next year, that next step to me has to be internal development. It needs to be figuring out what Romeo Langford's best position is and what how he's best going to help the team. The same with Aaron Neesmith. And then it becomes utilising the one-year deals you have, the draft picks that you don't envision yourself realistically needing over the next two to four seasons – Hopefully longer, obviously. And then packaging that for some longer-term deal guys that can come in and give you that veteran help at a decent value. So I I really like the Josh Richardson move as a high upside, low risk type of deal. I think Schroeder, again, was very opportunistic of Brad. But it's those sort of guys that are going to help elevate this roster. And if you're not getting Bradley Bill, then you need four or five players that can give you multiple areas of expertise. Schroeder as a a rim pressuring guard that can also play pointers attack Josh Richardson as a playmaking wing that can also defend having multi-skilled players but on longer term deals that are probably a little less of a project and more of a a win now instant kind of injection of skill and talent within to the roster I think that's what they need to do and double down on Tatum and Brown being good enough to get you to the promised land on their own
0: that's a really risky bet to make in a world in which the Nets can have you know, two top seven or eight players plus another top 20 player. And like the Celtics did try the pure talent route a couple of years ago that you could argue that they had five stars on the roster with Kyrie Tatum, Brown, Horford and Hayward. But obviously that didn't work out. So I wonder if Brad Stevens does have a little bit of scar tissue there where he's thinking like, I'd kind of rather do this slow and make sure we have the right mix. But I think that's a good place to talk about next year's roster and kind of what the what the upside is for next year's team specifically in a world in which the Nets have as much talent as they do. And the Lakers have as much talent as they do. I'm personally pretty high on next year's roster. I think they're going to be really good defensively. I think that they have the right kind of mix of defenders where having just had Schroeder in LA for all of his other flaws, when that dude is locked in as a point of attack defender, like he could be a real menace. And with all of the other defenders behind him, I think that's something where he can afford to be pretty risky there. He can afford to gamble and get really aggressive. I will say the frustrating thing about Schroeder more than anything, aside from the locker room stuff, which is its own other sort of set of questions is he gets a little afraid to shoot sometimes. And I can't imagine that's something that Brad Stevens is going to particularly like. Now, fortunately the spacing on that Celtics team is going to be so good that he can attack close so easily that's sort of the best part of his game. He's not really a pick-and-roll guy, but he's really good at attacking in space and getting to the basket that way. So I do think it's a better fit than the Lakers were. I like Josh Richardson as well. I'm guessing he's going to start. My thought is Schroeder comes off the bench. Just Let's start from there. Of those three guards, who do you think is starting and who do you think is coming off the bench?
1: Yeah, so I also want Schroeder off the bench. I think he makes the most sense as a six-man. Um, I like Marcus Smart as the starting guard. I think he's an underrated playmaker. And I hope, my hope is that by having so many high-level scorers and like elite-level offensive guys around you, you don't feel the need to chuck up threes every five seconds and heat check. You'll play more within the system and look to actually set guys up rather than find your own numbers. And I think that can be an issue for Smart when he's on like a second unit with less offensive talent. He feels that burden more. So putting him as the starting guard and having Schroeder come off the bench, that makes more sense to me. And if you can find a way of getting Peyton Pritchard on the floor with Schroeder, just for the extra spacing to allow him to be able to drive off catches, to be asked, um, I know he likes to come off pick and rolls and hit those um elbow pull-ups, giving him the space to do that and putting him in areas where he's going to feel comfortable, that could start to help elevate his shot profile as well and hopefully his shot selection, which was quite questionable over the last couple of years.
0: Yeah, questionable is putting it kindly. Um, having covered him with the Lakers, he I don't really understand a lot of what he does on offense. But I will say the other danger with Schroeder, and I think the reason you want him coming off of the bench, is that we, we can just say this. He's playing for a contract. He turned down $84 million, and now he's making six. He has $78 million to make up in his next free agency. So I would assume that when he go, comes into the game, he's going to want to score. And I'm guessing Boston is going to try to cater to that. But I'm also looking at this this guard rotation where you have Smart, who's going to presumably play a lot of minutes, especially in the playoffs. Josh Richardson, who I don't think he needs to play 35 minutes. But if he's starting, he's not going to be, you know, a 20-minute guy. Schroeder, who's playing for a contract. And then you have Pritchard and Langford. And part of me is a little worried that you're not going to have enough minutes for both of those guys. Unless you're playing guys at the three more and playing really small, which I think they could do. But realistically, I think there's a chance that one of those guys struggles for minutes. I'm not crazy about that because I think this season, one of the most important things for Boston is going to be figuring out which of their young guys are really long-term keepers. But I also sort of like the element of competition that you have there, right? Like if Pritchard or Langford, if one of them is a long-term keeper, hopefully they can beat out the other one.
1: That's been my mentality for right this offseason is, Competition should only ever be a good thing, especially when you've got young guys that have um, apparent high ceilings. Being forcing them into a position where development isn't just something that you hope, but now it's something that's a necessity. If you even expect to see the floor, that's going to either that's going to show you the competitiveness competitiveness level of both guys, but it's also going to show you how capable to, how capable they'll be in developing as an individual, because if they can't win starting minutes on this team, that isn't even a contending team, then you wouldn't want them out there in a starting five or off a bench unit trying to contend with other teams that may be chasing an eighth, six, or whatever seed it would be. So I like the competition level. I think it's going to show us who these guys really are and who wants it more. And I genuinely think if it comes down to Pritchard and Romeo, that Pritchard will win that battle quite easily.
0: I agree. Pritchard was... Like, as far as rookie number 26 overall picks go, like, Pritchard was very good last year. Like, I think there is real reason to believe that, if nothing else, we kind of have to go through this cycle every time that, like, there's a white backup point guard on a high-profile team. Where, like, we did this with Alex Crusoe, we did it with TJ McConnell to a lesser extent, where it's like, well, first we have to go through the memes, and then we have to go through the backlash of the memes, and now we have to land somewhere in between. And somewhere in between for Pritchard is, like, I think he can be a good backup guard I, I don't necessarily know that he is starter upside maybe low-end starter but like he's, he's a good NBA player and right now we don't really know what Romeo Langford is because he's played so little right like there have been these little flashes but I, I don't know that like I have a coherent vision on what Romeo Langford can be in the NBA so just of the five young guys that are under contract for 2022-23 I think we'd agree Aaron Neesmith is probably the most important of the five then you have Pritchard and Lankford kind of in their own group fighting amongst themselves. After that is Grant Williams. And then Carson Edwards is just, he's, he's gone somewhere. Like, I think we can safely say he's not a long-term part of the team's future. So Nismith, we would guess, barring a Beal trade or barring something extreme, is probably still going to be there. Lankford versus Pritchard is, I think, like the real battle to determine who is going to be a core part of the Celtics and who is not. I agree with you. I think Pritchard probably wins out there but you've seen Langford more than I have. And in the NBA, that hasn't been much. What do you think he is? Like, what do you think the fully actualized version of Romeo Langford is if he can stay healthy and he can win minutes?
1: I mean, the first thing to point out is this guy plays with the most nonchalant attitude I've ever seen from a basketball player.
0: That's not um, great on a Marcus Smart team either. Like that's a really noticeable yeah.
1: contrast. <laughs> he just he just plays with a very self-assuredness that can be mistaken for like a lack of effort. And obviously. I'm not in a position where I've spoke to him to be able to say anything to the contrary or to back that up. But it's just an observation that's quite apparent when watching him play. But I would say for me, I envision him more mainly as a ball handler, somebody that you can put in a pick and roll and ask him to use his athleticism in a similar way to Schroeder. Um, I think he's more athletic than Schroeder. Um, to be able to get downhill and pressure the rim, I don't. I think that three-point shot's going to be uh, immense for him if he continues to develop that. But in in his essence, he's a slasher, and whether that comes from the wing or come from the guard, you need to find the guard position. You need to find a way to get him in rhythm, downhill with the basket, and maybe one or two guys around him, and then just ex- hope his athleticism carries him out long enough that his the rest of his skill set starts to round out. Uh, As a ceiling, I think genuinely, and I've said this quite consistently, I I do believe he has the highest ceiling out of all five young guys on the Celtic roster, but he also has the lowest floor. And I think that risk within itself, when compared with Pritchard, where he's at now is quite comfortably his floor. And you're really curious to see how much more he can improve with the physical limitations he's got. I think that Pritchard's just that safer bet for a team that's looking to contend and already has another wing prospect that's shown more in Aaron Neesmith.
0: Yeah, I think Boston has made it very clear in the way that they've built this roster that they really do prioritize having a ball handling point guard, like not just having a nominal Patrick Beverly, George Hill sort of guy next to Tatum and Brown, but like having a legitimate point guard. And that was one of the problems last year was that Kemba was hurt and Kemba wasn't himself. And the offense didn't really adjust, right? Like I think we've sort of seen this organically now that Tatum and Brown for all their gifts, like, They're not LeBron-style wings. They're closer to Paul George Kawhi wings where they're better suited to play with like a high-usage point guard. I don't know that Langford can be that guy, but on the hopes that he can be like a pretty high-usage perimeter guy, I think you have to find minutes for him somewhere just to get an answer. Because right now, we know so little about him that getting him in there is important. And like, frankly, there is a part of me that thinks even if Pritchard deserves to win those minutes, I might make sure that I give some of them to Langford just because seeing what he is is more important, right? Like if you don't play Peyton Pritchard for two months, I don't know that that's the worst thing because he's gonna come back in whenever he's when you need him to and be ready to play versus Langford like just we need to see him like we need to see what he looks like with reps. But the young guys are the longer term issue here. I think the starting five here with we presume Richardson Smart, Tatum, Brown and Orford, I think that's quietly like a really awesome lineup. I don't know where I'm sliding them in the East, but like if you assume even Deeds and Ben's production, like I think they're probably the likeliest team to break into the top five of the East. You know, I think we've generally sort of assumed Nets, Bucks, Hawks, Sixers, Heat in some order is the top five. I think the Celtics are probably the likeliest team to break into that group. Where do you see their ceiling for this year? I don't think either of us would say they're a championship team, but like, Could they be a top four seed?
1: I think that's possible. I think they're just as likely to finish seventh as they are to finish fourth. Um, I love their starting lineup. I love the depth. I love the rotation and all of the possibilities that you can do with mix and matching your guards with wings. I do want to wait and see how well this all meshes together because obviously basketball isn't played on paper as much as I love that book. Um, It's definitely played on the court. So I think that there is a world where they could finish 4-4 third. and there's always a team you expect to be having a great season that maybe doesn't, you know, Philadelphia with everything going on with Ben Simmons, are they going to be able to put that aside and still be the regular season force they were previously? Or do they start to slide due to locker room issues? Can Atlanta hold it together after a deep run now with more expectations? I think there's so many games within the game that it's possible Boston could find themselves at third or second even. I mean, if if everything went great and Udoka just had an amazing first year as head coach.
0: I feel pretty confident that the Nets and Bucks, barring extreme injuries, are unassailable. Like, I think those are the top two teams. If you told me they finished third, I'd be a little skeptical, but I wouldn't dismiss it out of hand, right? Like, Atlanta was a pretty small sample of being as good as they were. The Heat are very old and, like, We don't know how much regression there's going to be with the older guys. We don't know how injury prone that team is going to be. And then Philly is just like a total mess. Like I don't, I I think Philly, like they were the one seed last year. So you would presume they're going to be a good regular season team, but this Ben Simmons situation is really ugly. Like what happens if they don't trade him? Like, what does that team look like on opening day? If he has to be back in that locker room, like, I'm not saying I think the Celtics are going to finish third by any means, but I I get the logic that there is top three upside here.
1: Oh, for sure. And as I said, the game within the game usually plays out and dictates a lot of which teams have overperformed and underperformed. I always think that has a lot more to do with what's going on behind the scenes than on the floor because that bleeds into the floor product. Mm -hmm. And I do think that the Celtics could fall anywhere from seventh to third. I think I do agree. Second and first are probably out of reach unless Brooklyn have more injury issues or decide to go down a we're going to stay healthy for the postseason type of mentality and sit with Kyrie, but there's just so much talent on that team. You, they could sit guys and still just cruise to a second or first place in the East. But I do think there's some serious upside to this team, and I think it will all come down to defense. The, the length that they've got, the switchability and the peskiness of multiple defenders on that team, they're going to be a real pain to play against this year.
0: I think peskiness is the right way to describe this team. They are not going to be fun to play against. Like, they're going to be a team when if you get them on, like, the fifth night of a road trip, you're going to be really annoyed that like, Marcus, do you really have to play this way? Can you maybe chill for a night? Like, oh, Horford's doing all these smart veteran things, et cetera, et cetera. Like, I think they're going to be a real pain to play against. But ultimately, I think we agree, this roster as currently constituted is not a championship team. I think it can be a very good team. And I think they can take a step closer back to where they were in 2020. But ultimately, like the championship upside probably isn't there right now and doing it with two stars versus doing it with three, like it's doable. I'm not going to pretend that you can't, but usually if you have, if it's going to be a two-star title team barring injuries to the field, it's got to be like LeBron and AD. It's got to be two guys that are top six, top seven, top eight, whatever. Like, and one of them is the second greatest player of all time. I think Tatum can get up to that level. Like I think the single most important question for Boston's future is, How much growing does Jalen Brown have left to do? Because every year we come in thinking, okay, we've now seen what Jalen Brown is. And then he takes another leap. And last year he was an all-star. And if there's still more room to grow, if he can get to somewhere close to where Tatum is, now you might have the two stars who can win a championship. If Jalen stays where he is, I think you might need the third guy. So I know that this is sort of a, I don't know, I don't want to say a broad question, but like, It's it's very hard to like nail this one down. Where do we think Jalen ends up? Like, does he have more room to grow? And if so, where?
1: This has been a question that has literally riddled my brain all off season. Like when he first came into the league, it was obvious left-hand needed development. So he developed that. Then the pull-up shot needed developing. And every year he's developed on a weakness that he had a perceived weakness that he had a previous season. This year was arguably his best year. I mean, he was an all-star this year. So where does he improve? I think for me, I'd like his on-ball defense to get back to a level he previously was. I think that's fell off a little bit over the last few yeah, seasons.
0: Yeah, I 100% agree with that. And especially because his off-ball defense can get like, he can float a little bit. He can, a little, mm. he can ball watch a little bit. So I, I think if he's, the defensive theory with him is he kind of has to be a stopper.
1: Yeah, for sure. And use that athleticism and strength that he's got and just be that defensive stopper. And then hopefully figure out a way to either create for others a little bit more or generate his own looks. Because he ran quite a bit of pick and roll last year. As you said, it was kind of organically forced upon him due to Kemba Walker's absence and the injury history, injury issues and Tate missing games, blah, blah, blah. But if he can develop that and create some looks for himself off pick and roll possessions or for others, then that will give him a different form of gravity. And hopefully that will allow him to explore different avenues for his shot selection or different ways that he can attack the rim. And I think now it's going to be more nuanced improvements rather than glaring holes that were in his game previously.
0: Yeah. I don't look at any single area of his game and say like he is maxed out until he figures this out. But I think playmaking is probably going to be the most important thing for him because I don't know when they're going to have another chance to get a max level point guard, right? Like, and even Kyrie and Kemba for all their gifts, they're not like traditional playmakers, I guess. They're much more shot makers. So I feel like whatever this team ends up being, especially with Marcus Smart now extended, they're probably not going to have a major investment in somebody who's going to average 8, 9, 10 assists a game. I think Jalen has to be, like, it has to sort of be in the aggregate. And that's going to mean, like, Jalen, you're going to have a pretty significant playmaking burden on your plate here. Can you live up to that? And I'm afraid to say no because every time I've said no about anything with Jalen Brown, he's sort of come out the next season and figured it out. It's been a pretty steady upward trajectory where every year it seems like some other area of his game has really been shored up. But Tatum is really the one that like, there's no question. Like Jason Tatum is, I had an argument with somebody on Twitter during the playoffs where I think Suns fans got a little confident. We're saying like, oh, Devin Booker is definitely better than Jason Tatum. And I just feel like saying like, no, Jason Tatum, like he's going to win an MVP. Like Jason Tatum is maybe, I'm not going to say the best young player in the NBA because Luka exists, but I would if you were going to go under 25 and Jason Tatum will be 19 forever. So he'll be on that list forever. But if you're going to say under 25 players in the NBA, Luka is number one and Tatum's number two. Like, do you agree with that?
1: Yeah, and I feel like that's an honest assessment as well. Like, Luca is just phenomenal. Tatum is right there behind him, but I do feel like there's just that one level above that Luca is, and whether or not Tatum can catch up in the future is questionable at best. But I I saw those arguments too, and I, I try and steer clear of them now because nothing good comes from getting into those back and forths on Twitter. I've
0: learned that firsthand.
1: Yeah, um, nothing good. If you put out a take and nobody agrees, the best thing is to just shut notifications off for that tweet and let everybody ridicule you. But um, I, I I started last season saying Devon Booker and Donovan Mitchell, I thought, had a lot of improvements to do. My argument was Donovan Mitchell had a great rookie season and didn't really improve on it. He kind of just lived off that rookie season and was the same player. He proved me wrong this year, as did Devon Booker. But... There's levels to it and I do think that Tatum is a bit ahead of both of them due to the fact that he's an amazing off-ball defender. Amazing might be a bit high, but he's a very good off-ball defender. Um can score a bit more off his own back than what Booker and um Mitchell can. I just think that second is I don't I don't see another young player taking that crown at the moment.
0: I think it's just the size too. Like so much more is available to you late in games as a shot creator when you're, you know, six nine. Versus when you're 6'3. Like, I just, that is um, one of the real differentiators. I also think Tatum is a little bit more skilled. I will say, though, I don't think, and I'll do a Jazz podcast at some point, I don't think enough was made of how good Donovan Mitchell was in the first two games of the Clippers series, where he was confounding the Clippers almost as much as Luka was, like even with Kawhi healthy, but that's an entirely separate conversation. So at this stage, I think the plan is still Bradley Beal, And I want to go through the three paths to which they could possibly get him. And I'll start with the least likely, and that would be an in-season trade. I say that that's least likely because at that point, it sort of does just become a pure bidding war, right? Like Beal isn't going to necessarily dictate destination to such a degree that it would dissuade really interesting teams. And if the Warriors really want to go for Bradley Beal, and it seems like they do, they can just offer more than Boston. If the Hawks really want Beal, they can offer more. If Denver puts Michael Porter on the table, and we don't know that they would, but if they did, they can offer more than Boston. So do you agree with the following statement? If Boston wants Bradley Beal, their best chance is him finishing the season with the Wizards.
1: 100%. I think that's the... uh, I'd put the caveat in there. If they want Bradley Beal without giving up Jalen Brown, the best chance is him finishing the season with the Wizards.
0: So that's an interesting question here and we haven't really discussed it. All of my Beal scenarios have mainly been with Brown and Tatum staying because I think without Jalen Brown, the Celtics become significantly less appealing. But Beal and Tatum, like that's still really interesting. So I'll just ask you this straight up. If it took giving up Jalen Brown, would you do it to get Bradley Beal?
1: Me personally, no. I think that Jalen Brown gives gives you defense and offense where Bradley Beal just gives you offense. Granted, it's elite-level offense, Um, I would like to kind of take a cop out and say I want to see how much more Aaron Neesmith develops because he's shown shades of Jalen Brown's um, development trajectory himself, and maybe the Celtics are kind of hoping on that. But as things stand right now, no, I would much rather pair all three of them together because, as we said earlier, two stars, unless they're top six, both of them being top six, is not enough to win a championship.
0: I agree with that, and I would just point out that, like, I think that the basketball discourse has been slow to catch up to this, but like Jalen Brown is not that far behind Bradley Beal. It's just like an overall value player. And I think with the defense, you could honestly argue, I don't think I would, I would have Beal ahead, but I think you could pretty credibly argue that Brown brings more to a basketball team than Beal does. I think if you're trading Jalen Brown as Boston, you're right. It has to be for like a top, top, top six guy. Like if they would have done it for James Harden, I think that would have been credible. If for whatever reason Stephen Curry had become available, like yeah, you do that because those are the sort of guys that like. I guess I hate to say that anything is unavailable, Jalen Brown, but that level of talent is so rare and it goes so far far beyond your raw athletic ability. It goes so far beyond all of these things that are predictable. That like if you have a chance to get that guy, no matter what, you do it. And for the same reason, like at the time, it it worked out this way. That I'm glad they didn't, but at the time, I was saying they should have given up Tatum for Anthony Davis. Because Anthony Davis is the sort of player that's available to you like once every 30 years. And if you have a chance to get that guy, you do it. I don't think Beal is that guy. I think Beal is the guy that if you have three, now suddenly that's really appealing. But I think we're on the same page here that Boston can't make an offer as interesting as Golden State can or as Atlanta can or Denver or any number of other teams. Let's just say hypothetically, like what is the best Boston offer without Jalen Brown in it? Is it like Marcus Smart, uh, Aaron Neesmith, all of the picks, all of the swaps. Like, I'm wondering how appealing that would be to Washington. And I've said this before. The real issue with Boston making a superstar trade is that their picks just aren't aren't that valuable. Because when you look at Brooklyn, the picks they were giving away were like when Durant was 40 and Kyrie was 38. Like, there is a real chance that those picks that Brooklyn gave up down the line turn out to be like top five, top three, whatever, when Boston's picks expire, like when you get to 27, 28, Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum are still in their early 30s. Like those are still going to be pretty low picks. So I think we're on the same page. Like, do you think there is a credible in season offer they can make?
1: Honestly, no. And I know people have been looking at Marcus Smart saying, oh, well, he signed the extension, but then you have that poison pill clause in the deal this year. So I think that makes things a little bit more difficult as well. Uh, I don't think there's a deal that they can make in-season that, that would win a bidding war, basically. And as you say, Bill wouldn't be in a position to really dictate where he goes. He'd have some control by saying, I won't re-sign and looking at things from, a uh, will teams be willing to take that shot on him and then try and convince him that he could stay and win a championship there? But as things stand out, no, I think Boston, if it becomes a bidding war in-season, Boston are going to have to bow out.
0: Yeah, I think if nothing else, If this does become a bidding war, even if Beal says Boston's where I want to be, that's where you should trade me. I won't resign with anybody else. I don't think Golden State blinks. I think Golden State still says, fine, here's Wiggins, here's Kaminga, here's Wiseman, here's Moody, like take our package. We have more to offer. And we dare you to leave Bradley Beal because Boston won't have cap space. They can't sign you outright. So that's a nice little way to dovetail into the cap space route, which would have been easier without the market smart extension, right? Like, If they hadn't re-signed Marcus Smart, they had a very easy path to max cap space. It essentially would have been, if you would have been able to trade off Al Horford, and we'll get into possible destinations, you could have kept all of the young guys and gotten to like $37 in space. At that point, it's just like, trade Grant Williams, trade Carson Edwards, boom, we're at the max, we're set. We have Tatum, Brown, Neesmith, Pritchard, and that way we have, and oh, and Lankford too, and we still have max cap space. With Marcus Smart, it obviously becomes significantly harder. If you wanted to go the cap space route, you would have to trade Horford and you would have to trade Smart. That becomes pretty difficult because there just aren't that many cap space teams out there next year, right? Right now, the cap space teams, before we factor in extensions, which are going to knock some of these teams out, are Memphis, Orlando, Charlotte, Detroit, San Antonio, New Orleans. And some of those teams, like New Orleans, for example, I'm sure they would love Marcus Smart. They can't afford to take him into space right now. So finding takers for Horford and smart is going to be difficult. And I want to key in on smart here. Like, do you think Boston has to give up a pick to get somebody to take that contract? It's a fair contract, but there's also a leverage situation here where like golden state had to give up a first to get off Andre Guatala. This is not unprecedented, especially when you're talking about a four year deal. So how comfortable would you be if it came to trading Marcus smart, that you could find a suitor without taking back any salary and if so, how much would that
1: cost in tax? I mean, the first thing is I wouldn't like to see that happen because of the optics of things. Like you sign a guy to an extension and then you trade him before he even starts the extension. Like that's not going to look good from a Celtics perspective. Um, if they were to do it for the Bradley Bill, um, I think they'd have to sweeten the pot a little bit, not because Marcus Smart's a bad player, but as you say, it's because it's a large amount of money to be absorbing into cap space. You're effectively doing the Celtics a favor because you know what they're trading smart away for at that point. So picks, maybe um, two, may, might even need to be two picks to get some a team to take it. And I still think it's unlikely at that point. Um, you're giving not only are you doing that, you'd have to send back a second rounder to make the trade work. So then you're giving Boston a, a, an enormous TPE, which gives them even more flexibility to build around Bill once Bill comes. I'll stop
0: in. you right there. There, there is one caveat here. If you use cap space, you do have to renounce your trade exceptions. So
1: Ah, do you? Okay. Yes. That's a, so what about Smart's trade kicker on his extension? Would that would that factor in?
0: Yes, that would make things a little bit more complicated too. I, I can I think the Celtics would pay it, but that still does become more complicated.
1: Yeah, I just don't see it happening. I think there's just too right. many moving parts and too many, too many difficult conversations. Uh and with no TPE either, I wouldn't want it to happen. Because if you didn't know this, Boston was the team that collects all the TPEs.
0: <laughs> so I think there are some teams that might be interested Like I think Detroit would love to have Marcus Smart As sort of a culture setter on their young team I think if New Orleans could trade a little bit of salary elsewhere Like say they get off of Jackson Hayes or something Then they could get pretty close And then maybe the Pelicans might want Marcus Smart I pegged the Grizzlies as an interesting Marcus Smart team Like I think getting off of Smart it's doable And I think it's doable without much pain The issue is I have no idea what they would have to do with Horford and that's where this gets really complicated because there are so few teams with enough cap space to absorb him that there is a good chance that if Boston wanted to go the cap space route, they would have to waive him and eat that 14 and a half million in, in dead money, which, I mean, that's significant, right? That, that makes it much harder to create meaningful space. So you're right. I think this is unlikely. There are paths to doing it, but I don't think that it's easy. And I would say that the likeliest outcome now is if they are going to get Bradley Beal, it would be through a sign-and-trade. Now the advantage of this, we saw this a lot this offseason, is that it means you can operate above the salary cap. You can keep trade exceptions. You can use the full mid level. You can keep some of your own guys, right? Like, I mean, maybe you keep smart if he's not in the sign and trade or maybe you re-sign Robert Williams or, you know, there are all sorts of other options open up. The issue here is twofold. Number one, you have to convince Washington to cooperate and that's always dicey, especially with a team like Washington that is held so firm on their plan that like, we are keeping Beal. That's it. That's the end of the discussion. We're not going into a rebuild. We don't tank yada, yada, yada. And the other part of this is we did see more teams this offseason operate above the cap. I believe the Knicks were the only team to actually, the Knicks and the Spurs were the only teams to actually use cap space. I think otherwise it was mostly trade. It was sign and trades. But the key to that is that Miami had the ability to actually create cap space. And the other teams did as well, but I'm going to use Miami as my example here. I think the reason Toronto was willing to sign and trade Kyle Lowry for relatively little, like Precious Achua and Goran Dragic is not nearly what they were asking for at the deadline is that they knew that if Miami needed to create the cap space to sign Kyle Lowry outright, they could have done it. The threat existed and that forced the Raptors to cooperate a little bit. Well, if the threat doesn't exist for Boston, And if Golden State can't create the cap space to sign Beal and if the other teams out there are like, is Memphis a realistic option? I'm not sure. Like, he's not going to Orlando, not going to Charlotte, not going to Detroit, not going to San Antonio. At that point, there isn't really the threat of Beal leaving through cap space because there isn't a team that could credibly sign him into cap space. So I wonder if Washington might just call his bluff and say, we're not signing trading you anywhere. We don't think you have anywhere to go. We think without cap space, your best bet is re-signing with us. That's why that gets sort of complicated. So I guess I'll put this out there broadly and let you take it in the direction you want to take it. If this does turn into a Beal is a free agent, the Celtics are operating above the cap situation, how likely would you think Bradley Beal coming through a sign and trade would be?
1: I think I'd give it a 6 out of 10. Like, wow, there's question, there's that's question, pretty high. Uh, there's questions over. Yeah, I thought that was quite conservative let you think okay. it's
0: that likely?
1: Uh, well, I didn't want to say five out of ten because it was a cop out, so I just went one above yeah. five. <laughs> I think it's a little bit more likely than uh, it's hard because I'd go four, but I've said six now. So the reason I'm saying six is I do think there's a good chance that the questions whether ownership are willing to pay the tax and that deep into the tax, that factors into things here because that's been um, a theme with Celtic's fans and Celtics media for a while now, whether or not the owners are committed to actually paying large tax bills. I don't think for me, this is where my think my mind was when I saw Washington make the moves they made this year. They're in a position now where they can say to bill. if I'm not mistaken, they can offer bill more money than anybody else out there. Right? Yes. Yeah. And it's significantly
0: more. It's a fifth year. And that fifth year is like 50 something million.
1: My mentality is they call his bluff putting a contract on the table that has that extra dollars on it and say to Bill, if in 18 months or in 12 months, you're still not happy, we'll rediscuss a mid-season trade. I don't see them being willing, especially moving him on in a sign-and-trade with Boston and taking back players that may or may not convey into star-level players or even high-level role players. I think that that's where the biggest issue for the Celtics is. That's why Marcus Smart would have to be part of that sign-and-trade, in my opinion. If you're keeping Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, really, all you're dangling to them is an Aaron Neesmith, a Romeo Langford, and it's just not enough, in my opinion. Not when when, um, Golden State can come in with a Kaminga, a Moody, uh, and a Wiggins. There's just more talent that they can offer that the Celtics just wouldn't be able to match. And that's where the biggest um, flaw in this whole plan just seems to keep coming back. The Celtics just don't have the pieces.
0: So here's my counter with Golden State sort of like how Boston is really hoping this gets to the offseason. I think Golden State is desperately hoping this happens during the season because if this gets to the offseason and you have to sign and trade for Beal, that creates a hard cap. And fitting Beal, Curry, Thompson, Green, and like real role players under that hard cap, like that gets pretty tough. I haven't done the exact math, but I have a hard time believing you could fit a credible group of role players around them And sure, some teams might be willing to say, okay, we'll take on the hard cap for a year and then we'll build out after that. Well, Golden State can't afford to be wasting years at this point, right? Like their three core guys are all in their 30s and feel quietly this is going to be his 10th year in the NBA. So I don't know if they can afford to waste a year with a hard cap. The hard cap actually benefits Boston a little bit because like you said, their ownership group might not want to go deep into the tax and the hard cap prevents you from going too deep. It keeps you at 6 million within the, tax line so i do think there are advantages there but i really wanted to go into this idea of, of washington calling beals bluff and saying we think you'll take this contract we don't think you have a better option but maybe we'll trade you down the line like i feel like we heard similar noise with Giannis, like oh if the bucks don't win a championship two years they'll just trade him anyway we've never really seen that and i think eventually we might but it's an interesting hypothetical road to go down Because we've never really seen this idea of like, look, Superstar X, we know that we're not a contender right now or we know we're not a championship favorite right now, but we think we can get there. And we will promise you that if we don't, we'll trade you. Because like, you have no guarantees at that point, right? Like, if you have three years left on your deal and we're seeing this with Damian Lillard in Portland, like, they don't have to trade you. They don't have to rush because you have such a long contract left in front of you. So I guess I'm just wondering, like, Let's say you're Bradley Beal, and you're talking about Washington with this sort of arrangement. Would you trust the Wizards to follow through on a trade?
1: And that's the question, right? I mean, there has to be a level of trust there. Like, Bradley Beal has to trust that the Wizards would honor that, but the Wizards also need to trust that Bradley Beal's going to honor his deal as well and not ask out in six, like sign that deal and ask out six months later. Um, I wouldn't trust either side, to be honest. I think I'd trust Beal a little bit more. Um, but I would, like, if you're a team's franchise player, their star draw, and you're asking gate, but you've just signed a deal and they've got four more years of control over you, like you said, there's no need to rush that. There's no need to feel pressure into moving them. So you can never have full trust when you're signing away the next three, four, four or five years.
0: It's just such a risk that I don't think I'll see a. I don't. I, I don't. I don't think I see a player of Beal's caliber taking right. Like, and it was sort of the same with Giannis. When people had speculated, like, oh, you know, just because he signed doesn't mean he's going to stay with Milwaukee forever. Like, yeah, I think it kind of did. I think that was his indication that, like, look, he understands the situation in front of him and he is going to try to win anyway. Beal's situation is different because Milwaukee was already close. And Milwaukee already made significant inroads when they traded for Drew Holiday. At that point, they had signaled to Giannis, like, we are willing to spend. We are going to make a commitment to winning. Like, the Wizards... I mean, God, where would Dinwiddie have been on the Bucks? Would he have been the fifth best player on that team? Like, they're m- much, much further away than the Bucks were. So you've talked about liking the moves that the Wizards have made. We should talk about re-signing Beal just in general. Like, what do you think their ceiling is? Because right now I have them as a play-in team.
1: Unfortunately, so do I. I don't think they've improved that much. But what I do think they've done is shown... Bill a willingness to make deals to build around him like kcp we talk about how bill's friendship with tatum is such a big draw to boston bill has quite a reportedly close friendship with kcp so they've brought in somebody that he can relate to a friend that he's going to be going to work with every day i don't think that was by mistake i think that was perfectly well designed from the the wizards front office but as you say they are a playing team maybe they could possibly scrape through as like an eight seed, but even if so, I don't see them getting any further than the first round.
0: I think if, if he's resigning there, it's because he has some inkling that like they can trade some combination of, and they've got a pretty substantial group of young guys right now, right? Like no young stars, but you know, Kuzma plus Hachimura plus, you know, Danny Avdia plus Daniel Gafford, Thomas, Bryant, Aaron holiday. Like they have stuff to trade for veterans if that's what they want to do. I think if he's re-signing, it's because he has some inkling that he can recruit somebody else to Washington, but I'm not really sure who that is. And we can turn this as a pivot into alternatives to Beal for Boston. There's only one other really big name, one real difference maker that's going to be a free agent next offseason. That's Zach Levine. And I'll throw this out there to you. I don't think that they have the same recruiting advantages with Levine that they had with Beal. Although... Levine did just play with Tatum in in the Olympics. So maybe there's a relationship there. I don't know. But Bradley Beal's max as a 10-year player is 41.6 million. Zach Levine's is 35.7 million. That is way easier to manage with cap space to the point where like, say you did the cap space route and you traded everybody but Tatum, Brown, and Smart. At that point, you have 33.8 million in space. That's close enough to Levine that like maybe you could, convince him to take a little bit less i'm not sure but my point is i don't know if chicago would be as eager to cooperate on a sign and trade in fact man that's that's a whole other situation so i don't think that they're going to be as eager to help the celtics but do you look at levine as at all a viable secondary option
1: i mean i do but i just don't like talking about clearing out the team for cap space to bring in levine I don't think he elevates you the same way Bradley Beal ever elevates you. I think that's a given, to be fair. But at the same time, is he worth having to rebuild an the entire rotation for adding him to Brown and Tatum? Is his game too similar to what you're hoping Brown develops into on an offensive standpoint that you can find a way for that to work? I just don't see the fit there as much with Levine as what I did with Beal, who's more of just a pure scorer. Um I'm not sure that I'd be willing to go the cap space route to bring in Levine. Now don't get me wrong. I wouldn't say no, if that was what happened, I wouldn't be upset or disgruntled, but I just don't see the fit as being enough to elevate you from potential third or fourth seed to perennial championship contender. I just don't see how that works.
0: I think the really real appeal of it would be that he is so young and Tatum and Brown are so young that you could say we're doing this and we don't have to win the championship right now. We can take a few years and really try to build out around this group, especially with smart still there. We're like, we don't have a championship core yet, but the talent is so overwhelming that like, if in two years we find the right center and we can build out the right bench and get the right minimum guys. At that point we have championship caliber talent and that's not nothing. It's you're right. It's not as easy a fit. Levine isn't quite the off ball player that Beal is. Neither of them are particularly good defenders, but, I guess in a winning situation, I'd favor Beal slightly in that front. But I don't know. That's, that's pretty subjective at this stage. I just think that the talent play is so important for them because they have lost so much talent over the last couple of years, right? Like, they have essentially lost, I don't want to say lost three stars, especially because Horford's now back. But, like, losing Horford for nothing, losing Kyrie for almost nothing, replacing him with Kemba and having to use a pick to get off of him losing hayward for not nothing but essentially now josh richardson like that is such a talent drain that you have to start really just thinking about how can we replace the talent before anything else
1: yeah and i completely agree with that i mean i said earlier today to somebody that the one thing this roster really needs to elevate them is a healthy golden hayward mm-hmm. and it's just it's just got wrenching that that was the guy that left last year that they really needed last year as well. So going for the best talent available makes a ton of sense. It really does. And there is a world where I could see you moving living into a, a ball handling position at the one or at the two, having him play alongside Marcus Smart with then Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, and now you've got a really nice core to start to so your starting five, and you can build out from there. and i can I can understand the need to add that level of talent. It makes perfect sense to me. I'm just not sold that. Can you keep Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum happy? On, throughout this rebuild. Their, t- the, their the clock on both of their extensions is already ticking. The, I always worry about the player side of things and how they envision what the the front office is doing. And once their contract winds down, and the, you know they've got now they've brought in Zach Levine, but the the bench has gone back to being poor. And you have to wait another year and another year can you really sell them on an extra extension? And that would be where my biggest apprehension would come from in doing this, shedding everybody to bring in the best talent available and hoping that clicks in a year or two.
0: You know, that's interesting because I think in this era in NBA history, so much of player movement is dictated by what the players want, where like we saw this with the Lakers, it seemed like they were going to get Buddy Heald. They end up getting Russell Westbrook and there's all this reporting coming out afterwards. That's what LeBron and Anthony Davis wanted. I wonder if Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum would be actively pushing for, if not Beal, maybe they do want Zach Levine or maybe they stay out of it. I think that's a big part of this. But the other part of it is if you're not getting Beal and you're not getting Levine, things suddenly get pretty dicey on the free agent market, right? Like At that point, maybe TJ Warren, maybe Robert Covington, maybe you try to make space for a big offer sheet for Jaron Jackson or DeAndre Ayton that would get matched sign and trade Colin Sexton, like there aren't that many really appealing options out there for you. So I do feel like if it's not Beal and it's not Levine, your best bet is probably just trying to run it back, right? Like maybe you re-sign Richardson, you keep Horford and he's a big expiring that maybe you use in a trade somewhere else. You re-sign Robert Williams. That's something else I want to talk about. I have no idea what Robert Williams' value in an extension is. Like, do you have any clue? Like what's your number for him?
1: Oh, man. <laughs> it's so hard to judge. One thing before we get onto that, a sign and trade for Colin Sexton, in my opinion, wouldn't be the worst thing in the world for that team if they're looking for a point guard. Um, I think the go-
0: price on him would be, I mean, not cash wise, the cash cost would be significant, but the asset price on him doesn't seem like it would be super high. So as far as a talent upgrade, I do agree with you. I do think that's a fit.
1: I think that makes a lot of sense, especially if you're looking for a guy that can score and facilitate. And I think Sexton's a bit of an underrated defensive piece as well, if he was put around other high-level defenders. To get back to your question with um Robert Williams, I've been looking at maybe a two plus one, like a two-year player option on the third or team option, probably a team option. Two plus one, 10 million a year. So Robert Williams is making some real money for the next two years of his season, career, sorry but he's not locked in long term. So if his injuries don't kind of dissipate and we start to see him be a more valuable and available player, then the team can cut their losses after a year or two years, depending if it's a one plus one or a two plus one. And if Robert Williams does manage to stay healthy and provide the impact we that he's capable of, he's not tied down for so long that he can't negotiate a higher contract because we all know that athletic bigs generally have a short shelf life.
0: Yeah, I was going to say that's a pretty similar contract structure to what Talon Horton Tucker got from the Lakers. And I think there's some similarities there in that you have these really high upside players that like you've seen these flashes from, but have never been able to play consistent big minute roles and have these flaws that like, you know, make you kind of scared about certain roster constructions and, you know, how much of a long-term fit they could really be. But the talent is so tantalizing that you do it. And like, I wrote this after game one of the Nets series that version of Robert Williams is a defensive player of the year. It's just that you don't see that version of him that often. So it's really hard to peg. Like, do you want to commit $10 million a year to somebody that like, frankly, we can just say this. Brad Stevens gave every indication that he just didn't like with the way that he ran his rotation. Right? Like there are all these jokes at the, at the deadline that the real reason Danny ain't trade Dan, um, Daniel Tice was that he just needed to open up minutes for Williams because there was no way that Brad was going to play him otherwise. So I think it's now interesting that, Brad is the one in the, in the GM seat. And he asked to decide how much am I willing to pay Williams? Well, I wasn't willing to play him. So probably not that much, right? Like, do you agree with that? That I don't think Stevens is the executive that wants to pay Williams that much.
1: Yeah. I mean, I can agree with that. Williams is a super frustrating guy. He's a very pogo stick defender. Most young athletic bigs are, you know, they bite on every pump fake, they rely on athleticism to make up with like patch over their mistakes. And that must drive coaches crazy because you, the mistakes are what annoy coaches the most. So I can see why Brad Stevens would be hesitant. Also, you've got the lingering issues. There's a, apparently there's knee issues that could probably carry through all of Rob Williams' career, it would limit him to around about twenty five minutes a game. I've seen multiple uh, reports on that permanently. So that automatically drops his value even more. And you just have to ask yourself: Is the the impact when he's healthy worth the, the struggles when he's not. So like you're weighing up the pros and cons. And I think that maybe seven to eight, seven to nine million range on a on a player, a one plus one or a two plus one, I think that works for all parties because all you need is Robert Williams to be healthy for an entire playoffs, and you're going to have immense impact off the bench. His passing is underrated as well. I think he he has potential to be one of the better passing big men in the league especially in five outsets i think he can really read a defense when he's at the top of the break he has the ability to be as you said one of the better defensive bigs in the league it's just that health standpoint and can he get his body right and i'd be willing to take it if i was the celtics a seven to nine million a year gamble i think that's more than um the the risks the, the pros outweigh the risks
0: you know that's a combination of skills that we just don't see that often right like How often do you see the lob threat big man that's also like a really good short roll passer? I think if you get that right, that's so hard to game plan against. Like, what do you do defensively against that? I don't have a good answer, but you're right. I think that's a fair price range where it's like low end starter, high end reserve. It's a gamble, but the talent is so high that we take the chance. I'm thinking more about this Colin Sexton thing the more that we talk about it. I kind of like that. I like that a lot. I don't think he's as much of a playmaking fit with with Brown and Tatum, but I've been very adamant on the show that I just think his upside as a scorer is so high. And defensively, you know, long wingspan, he competes. He's just been in kind of a bad ecosystem. The other thing, quietly, about Cleveland is like, we suspect that they're going to be high in the lottery again next year, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, you'd hope so. Well, you'd envision so would be the better way of saying that. Yeah.
0: So they have their bigs in Mobley and um, Jared Allen, who just gave 100 million too. Isaac Okoro, they're probably hoping is going to be a wing of the future for that. I love Okoro. I love, I, I love the idea of Okoro. I didn't see enough last year to get too enthused, but I, I'll put it this way. I don't think that they're going to be ready to make any decisions about Okoro after next year, but like with Darius Garland also, who I think is probably their preference as a long-term guard, like already in place. Suddenly it's like, you're going to give Colin Sexton an a hundred plus million with all these other guys that you like. I don't know. Like I think it, it, I think there's enough smoke there that they would be willing to move off of him, especially with another high lottery pick coming in that like suddenly they're going to have a lot of expenses to deal with. So I think Sexton is going to be pretty attainable. So I think you could do something next year where it's like we sign and trade or we trade smart for Sexton and Cleveland's logic is like, Oh, we got more of a veteran. We're going to try to win now. And by the way, if Kobe Altman is still in his job by then, I would presume his seat is going to be pretty hot. So getting some veterans makes sense for him. Getting picks might make sense if it's a replacement with a longer runway. So I'm starting to talk myself into this. I really like this Colin Sexton idea.
1: It's one I've toyed with. I know there was rumors earlier in the summer about it. I remember reading something heavy.com. I spoke to Evan Damarel from um, Fear the Sword and Locked On Cavs. He's a great guy. Um, and I've kind of watched a bit of film of Sexton. And what I've talked myself into, as you said, his playmaking ability isn't where you'd want it to be for a point guard for Boston. But scoring gravity helps kind of alleviate that playmaking to a certain extent due to the, the passing lanes it creates when defences have to cre- um, collapse on you or shoot gaps on you. And that, along with some internal growth from Sexton, who's prioritizing playmaking due to the talent around him, I think that you could see that develop and flourish, and he would be an excellent long-term fit along time, alongside uh, Tatum and Brian. I think it just makes a ton of sense from what Cleveland need what Cleveland would want to do, and then what could help Boston as well if Bradley Beal doesn't come to fruition. I think it's a solid, uh, another buy low. Well, it'd be like a buy high, but higher reward type thing.
0: It's also sort of fitting because Colin Sexton was originally drafted with a pick that Boston sent to Cleveland for Kyrie Irving. So I think that would be a nice way to like sort of say, we have overcome all of the damage that the Kyrie trade did by bringing back the player that we sent out to get him. And then they can re-sign Isaiah for the minimum too. Are Celtics fans ever going to get over that? Are we ever going to have a day where Celtics fans aren't screaming, sign Isaiah for the minimum?
1: I don't know. I, I get frustrated more than anybody with that. Um, I think that'll be happening when Isaiah Thomas is 75 years old. Give Isaiah I, the minimum. He's the I went through this Buster. on
0: Lakers Twitter too, where they're just like, oh yeah, he's another bucket. Bring him in. And I'm just thinking like, Guys, they have LeBron, Westbrook, Monk, Carmelo, nut. Like, they have enough guys who can create their own shot. Chill. Isaiah really captures the imagination of fans in a way that, like, I, I got it when he scored 30 points a game, but, like, now that he's not that good on offense with all of the defensive issues he brings, like, you, if you're signing him, he'd better be your 15th man. But I think Isaiah Thomas' talk is the right place to conclude this. But, Adam, you, okay. I, you write in so many places and you do so many different things that I was a little afraid of introducing you because I was afraid I was going to forget stuff. So I'm just going to give you the floor. Like, where can people find your work?
1: Uh, it's fluctuating all the time. I've just moved into a full-time freelance capacity. So i uh, not sure who likes working, but at the moment I'm at CelticsBlog.com. That's probably the place I'm proudest to be actually to the amount of talent there, the amount of um, work that they put out and just how amazing that team is. So you can find me over at celticsblog.com. You can find me hosting their podcast as well as the Celtics pod. Uh, if you're looking for any other work, you can find me at sports That's like a, a big website out in Asia. That's slowly moving into the NBA market. Uh, I felt like it was a good move to get in on the ground floor with those guys. And generally just look at me on Twitter or Instagram at Adam Taylor, NBA, um, YouTube, the same. I'm pretty much anywhere. Social media is all under that one same handle.
0: Adam is one of the hardest working people in basketball. Like I hear all of these places that he's putting out content. And I just sort of go like, man, I'm glad I, I can do this under one roof. Like I just, I, I envy the, the amount that you work, man, but you do great stuff. You do incredible stuff covering the Celtics. Your podcast is great, but this was a blast. Adam, I'd love to have you back down the line, but um, otherwise, yeah. So my vacation is officially over. We will start putting out podcasts more often. There's a lot of off season stuff to cover, but for now, go like, go subscribe, go do all of that good stuff. Adam, this was a blast, man. Thank you for coming on.
1: No, thank you for having me, man. I've really enjoyed it. it was a pleasure.
0: And that'll do it for us here today. And we'll be back probably later this week. If not, there will be multiple episodes in the near future. So stay tuned. And thank you for listening.